This morning's Bible passage is on John chapter 2, verses 1 to 12, uh, page 861, John chapter 2. On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, They have no more wine. Woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied. My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so. And the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realise where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, Everyone brings out the choice wine first, and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best till now. What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory, and his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and brothers and his disciples. There they stayed for a few days. This is the word of the God. Well, good morning, everyone. My name is Jonathan, and I'm one of the, the ministers here at uh, church. According to a Latin saying, if wine is missing, everything is missing. Is that true? Do you agree? Well, I don't know what to think, actually. But what I do know, what I do know, is that if Christ is missing, and if Christ is missing from your life, everything is missing. Why? Because Christ is everything you need. Everything I need to know God and to have eternal life. And that's what uh, John, uh, why John, uh, the author, writes his gospel. What I love about this book, amongst many other things, is that it doesn't beat about the bush. It tells you straight away what his purpose is. John chapter uh, 20, verses uh, 30 to 31. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. Isn't that clear? Why is John writing this book? Because he wants you to believe that Christ is the Son of God, the Messiah, the promised King, and that by believing in him, putting your trust in him, you may have eternal life. You may know God. And in the Gospel of John, uh, Jesus makes uh, seven what John calls signs, or we could say miraculous signs. Signs to reveal his identity, who he really is. And this morning, we have a privilege to see the very first of his signs, when Jesus changed water into wine to reveal his glory. Isn't that amazing? 
So I've got a, a main point this morning. Jesus reveals his glory. We'll see what that means. How does he do that? By changing water into wine, which is going to change the faith of his disciples. And my prayer for us this morning is that you would see Jesus' glory in this passage. And that your faith and your life would be completely changed as a result. So I've got three points. First of all, Jesus changed water into wine from verse 1 to 10. Then Jesus changed his disciples' faith from verse 11 to 12. And then my last point is Jesus can change your faith and your life. Ready? First of all, Jesus changed water into wine. Verse 1 to 10. The, same, the scene takes place in Cana, uh, which is basically a, a village in Galilee, uh, north of Jerusalem. For those who have been in Israel or who have uh, the map of Israel in their head, it's, just, it's not too far from Nazareth. And Jesus and his disciples have been invited to a wedding where there's no more wine. And at that time, wedding could last for days, which explains why wine could be gone at some point. And because wine is an essential part of, of, a, of a wedding, the question is, how are people going to have fun and enjoy themselves? Who is going to save the day? It's a bit as if you were organizing a barbecue this afternoon in your back garden. And you are running out of sausages. The question is, what are you going to do to save the day? How are people going to have family enjoy themselves? No sausages, no fun. At least in Australia. And that's when Mary, Mary, uh, Jesus' mother, decides to step in by alerting Jesus to the problem. Look at verse 3 with me. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, They have no more wine. It's a bit embarrassing. No more wine for the guests. But Jesus' response is surprising, isn't it? Look at verse 4. Woman, why do you involve me? My hour hasn't come yet. Now this way of the way this verse is translated uh, may give the impression that Jesus lacks respect or doesn't respect his mother. But the expression he used, like mother, is actually perfectly appropriate, uh, courteous, polite. In fact, Jesus, I think, simply distances himself from his mother to tell her that he will do something about this when he decides, when his hour comes. And then in this verse, I think this word of hour has a deep double meaning. And if you've read the book of John before, you know that that happens a lot, doesn't it? Sometimes words can have a double meaning. Do you see what I mean? And I think that's the case in that verse. On the one hand, I think Jesus refers to the hour or the time when he decides to solve the problem by providing for the needs of the people at this wedding, which is, what do they need? Wine. And he says, yeah, don't worry, I'll do it. In, in my own time, I'll do it. But I think on the other end, 
Jesus refers to a much more important, a much more solemn hour. The hour when he dies by crucifixion and comes back to life to provide for a more important need. To give us the best wine. The best wine. Even better than the French wines. Which we see later. In the meantime, I think Mary gets the message and trusts his son. Look at verse 5. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. In other words, look guys, listen to my son and do what he says. Because he knows what to do. He's the boss. And that's when Jesus decides to take action. He tells the servants to fill the jars with water, approximately 500 liters, maybe more to draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet, who doesn't know what happened. In fact, the bridegroom hasn't saved the best wine till now. But what happened is, Jesus changed water into wine. What an amazing sign, isn't it? What an amazing miracle. But the question is, what does this sign mean? And that's my second point. Firstly, Jesus changed water into wine. Secondly, Jesus changed his disciples' faith. Look at verse 11 with me, which is the key to understand this passage, I reckon. What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of his signs through which he revealed his glory. And the disciples believed put their trusts in him. In other words, when Jesus changed water into wine, something changed in the way the disciples saw Jesus. In the previous section, chapter 1, verses 90 to 51, the disciples saw in Jesus that he was, do you remember last week? Who was Jesus according to the disciples? The Messiah, remember, last week, the King of Israel, the Christ. But now, now, after seeing Jesus perform such an amazing miracle, the disciples saw what? What did they see in Jesus? His glory. His glory. Does that ring a bell, God's glory in the Bible? I think it's an expression referring to the fact that Jesus is God. God himself, which John has been telling us for, since the beginning of his gospel. John chapter 1 verse 8, sorry, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was, remember, God. Chapter 1 verse 14, the Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his... His glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from a Father, full of grace and truth. Chapter 1, verse 18. No one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son, who is God himself. Did you get it? The Son is God. And his closest relationship with the Father has made him known. So when Jesus changed water into wine. 
it shines with faith of his disciples by revealing himself to them. That he isn't just a man, not just a prophet, not just a clown, not just David Copperfield. He's a famous mag magician, by the way. But God himself. After all, who but God can make such an, such an amazing miracle, changing water into wine? As far as I know, such a miracle has never been made by any prophet of any religion. Please correct me if I'm wrong. But the question is, how do you respond to Jesus when he turns water into wine? What's your reaction? Do you see his glory? Do you want to believe in him? You see, if you put your trust in Jesus, you can not only change your faith, but also your life. That's my, my, my final point this morning. First of all, Jesus uh, turned water into wine. Secondly, it changed his disciples' faith. He can change your faith in your life. And if you're not a Christian this morning, uh, maybe you, you just can't believe in Jesus because you just don't believe in miracles. After all, you might say, uh, miracles cannot happen. Uh, so they, they do not exist. And if you, you really believe, like, uh, firmly, that miracles are absolutely impossible because, for instance, science has disproved, uh, discredited Christianity. Um, and if you think that basically all these scientific discoveries have proven that there are no such thing as miracles, can I encourage you to read this book by Tim Keller, The Reason for God. Have you read that book before? That's a really good book, an excellent book. In this book, Keller answers uh, seven common objections to to the Christian faith, and he gives us reasons to believe, hence the title, reasons for God, reasons to believe in God. So, for instance, if you believe, like, firmly that science has disapproved Christianity, that's what you, you can read, I, I quote. It is one thing to say that science is only equipped to test for natural causes and cannot speak to any others. It is quite another to insist that science proves that no other causes could possibly exist. The other hidden premise in the statement, miracles cannot happen, is there can't be a God who does miracles. If there is a creator God, there is nothing illogical at all about the possibility of miracles. To be sure that miracles cannot occur, you would have to be sure beyond a doubt that God did not exist. And that is an article of faith. Did you get his point? It is one thing to prove, uh, that, to say that science can prove things. It's another to prove that science cannot prove other things. But no other causes could possibly exist. And even if you don't believe in God, you, you believe. You do believe in something else that you cannot see. At the end of the day, we all believe, don't we? We all have a faith in someone or in something. The question is, who do you believe in? Who did you put your trust in? As you know, as Christians, we, we've put our trust in, in Christ. And one day, that's exactly what someone called least trouble did. Have you heard of Lee Strobel before? 
Lee Strobel used to be a, um, a non-Christian journalist uh, who investigated to find out about uh, Jesus' resurrection. He wrote a book called The Case for Christ, and this book became a movie, which I saw last year. And in this book, and in the movie, uh, Lee Strobel retraces, recounts the spiritual journey he took for nearly two years. And in his quest for truth, he used his um, experience, uh, his training as, as a legal affairs journalist, to look at several categories of, of evidence, like the eyewitness evidence, the documentary evidence, and even the scientific evidence. And at the end of the book, this is what he says. I quote, I'll admit it. I was ambushed by the amount and quality of the evidence that Jesus is the unique Son of God. The cumulative facts and data pointed unmistakably toward the conclusion that I was entirely, that I wasn't entirely comfortable in reaching. And can I challenge you? Why don't you do the same? If you really want to know the truth, why don't you do exactly the same? Why don't you investigate to find out the truth about Christ's life, death, and resurrection? By reading the Castle Christ, for example, or another movie, or another book. But the question you need to ask yourself, though, I think is this one. How much evidence do you need? How much? As someone asks, uh, least trouble in the movie, when is enough evidence? Enough evidence. Do you get it? When is enough evidence? Enough evidence. But if you already believe in Christ, I wonder if the sign of water being turned into wine, I wonder if this sign has changed something in your faith in Christ. Just like he did for the disciples. What impact? does this sign have on your faith this morning, right now, as we speak? If nothing happens, if you are, are treading water, if you're stagnating spiritually, if you struggle with doubt, just like some disciples did after they met Christ face to face, after resurrection, could it be? Could it be because your ideas or views about Christ are not biblical? are wrong? Could it be because you haven't fully realized who Christ really is? Could it be because you haven't looked carefully enough at what Christ does and says in the Gospels especially? When I was going out with, with Meg, my wife, I remember spending a lot of time looking at a very specific picture of her, a picture which was taken in, in Paris. And you know what? I never got tired of looking at her face and a beautiful smile. I just couldn't, couldn't look away. Is that how you look at Christ when you read your Bible, when you read the Gospels? Is that how you look at Christ? When you follow the Bible reading on Sunday morning at church, when you read the Bible on your own in the morning or at night, 
when you read the Bible with someone else. And if you don't do that, why don't you do that? Why don't you read the Bible with someone? What kind of Bible reader are you? Are you distracted? Or do you look at Christ carefully, very carefully, to understand not only what he did, but also who he is? You see, if you pay enough attention to Christ, if you fix your eyes on him, not only can he change your faith, but also your life, like he did for millions of people throughout the world. Let me tell you the story of his former uh, a coal miner. I don't know if he lived in Australia or not, but this guy was addicted to alcohol. And one day, he became a Christian and very vocal about his faith. And one day, one of his friends wanted to, to, to tease him, uh, to trap him by asking him if he really believed that Christ changed water into wine. Do you really believe that kind of stuff? Come on. Do you know what he said? I certainly do. In my home, Christ has turned wine into furniture, decent clothes, and food for my children. Isn't that a beautiful testimony? How Christ changed the life of someone who used to be addicted to alcohol. I could also tell you the story of his former convict who became a new man after becoming a Christian. Let me read out just a small part of his testimony. All habits and attitudes were replaced as the Spirit of God worked in my life. The vengeance that I had nourished for five years and the rebellious spirit that had been a driving force in my life relaxed their grip when Christ took control. Little by little, he replaced my hatred by his love. Sometimes I lay in the prison yard, looking at the sky and relishing the joy and peace that I had found in Christ. The bars and fences were still there, as were the guards with their high-powered rifles. But I had an easy strength. I had never known before the very presence of Christ. Do you know that presence? You want to get rid of your vengeance? Vengeance to nourish maybe in your heart? Do you want this re- vengeance to be replaced by, by, by the love of God? Turn to Christ. Believe in Him. Put your trust in Him. And I'm sure some of us could share a similar story. I mean, maybe not as a, as a former convict. But why don't you share your story? with someone over of a morning tea, or if you invite someone for lunch, why don't you share your testimony, how you came to Christ? To help someone see his glory. To finish, I'd like to show you that um, when Christ changed water into wine, he not only revealed his glory, but I think he also reveals what he's going to do one day. I think he's showing us the superior quality of the wine he's going to provide for all who believe in him. I know it is very easy to read a bit too much into this sign. Do you know what I mean? Uh, You can read all sorts of things. And I don't want to spiritualize it. And I certainly don't want to over-spiritualize this sign. I think we can tell, say two things. First, Christ revealed his glory because that's what the text says. But I think there is a hint in the passage which tells us 
But what Christ is doing is revealing what he's going to do when he comes back again. For all who believe in him. Listen to what the prophet Isaiah wrote. Isaiah 25, verse 5 to 9. Isaiah, an 8th century prophet, wrote 700 years before Christ. Listen to what he says about the future of all who trust in the Lord, about your future. On this mountain, uh, Zion in Jerusalem, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples, a banquet of edge wine, the best of meats and the finest of wines. On this mountain, it will swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces. In that day they will say, surely this is our God. We trusted in him. And he saved us. That is the Lord. We trusted in him. Let us rejoice and be glad in his salvation. Do you see what Christ is doing here? He's telling us that he's preparing a banquet. A joyful banquet with the best food and the best wine you can ever get. Which is a symbol, I think, of the eternal joy of salvation. Do you want to leave this, this new creation with no more death or mourning or crying or pain? Do you? Do you want your tears to be wiped away by the Lord himself? If so, Trust him. Believe in Christ who died for you and rose from the dead. Drink from his wine, which is far better, far better than the water used for ceremonial washing, which is far better than the insipid water of religion, which is far better than the poisonous water of the fleeting joys of his world which can turn you away from the Lord. You see, Jesus isn't a kill joy. After all, he was invited to a wedding. I'd love to have Christ at my wedding. How wonderful would that be? Why don't you invite him in your life right now? Just a foretaste. Just a foretaste of a great banquet you'll organize when he comes back. Let us pray. We can let the Spirit of God be at work through His work, through His Word, and in our hearts for a few seconds. Lord God and Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your Son, the Lord Jesus, who revealed His glory when He turned water into wine and change a disciple's faith. We pray in the same way, the revelation of your glory will not only change our faith, but our lives. By the power of your Spirit, we pray, we do pray, that you would enable us to see you as you really are in the Scripture. We pray that you would enable us to put our trust in you for the very first time, to renew our faith and our commitment to you. To have a foretaste of a joy, the joy of eternal salvation, you promise to all who believe in you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.